This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Parag Khanna is a leading geostrategist, world traveler, and author of the international bestseller, The Second World, Empires and Influence in the New Global Order. Stephen J. Coburn, Wharton Management Professor and publisher of Wharton Digital Press, recently spoke with Khanna about his latest book, How to Run the World, Charting a Course to the Next Renaissance. I'm speaking to Parag Khanna, who is the author of How to Run the World, published this year by Random House. And let me start off with, with a, a few questions. You talk about the fact that the, we're entering a postmodern Middle Age and that 21st century diplomacy is going to be very complex, that technology and money rather than sovereignty are going to determine who has authority and who, who calls the shots. And you talk about mega diplomats. Who are these mega diplomats? Uh, back to the postmodern Middle Ages. You know, this is a very important analogy because it's not just a, a clever historical reference. The thing is that the Middle Ages was that period a thousand years ago when East and West were simultaneously powerful, when China was the world's most advanced civilization under the Song Dynasty, when the Chola Dynasty of India was a great naval power, when the Arab and Islamic caliphates ruled all the way from North Africa to uh, Central Asia. And so that was really a multipolar landscape. Europe was weak and divided between the Byzantine Empire and, and, um, uh, uh, and the Holy Roman Empire. So the fact that it was a multipolar landscape around the world is a very important attribute of the Middle Ages. And again, when people realize today, as I spent a lot of time arguing in my first book, The Second World, that the world is already very multipolar, we need to appreciate that it's not the first time in history. Uh, secondly, you know, that was a time when not just states, but also cities and companies and, uh, and mercenary armies and humanitarians and churches were very important actors in, in the diplomatic landscape. So, too, is that the case again today. So for those two reasons, we are seeing um, you know, this emergence of a postmodern Middle Ages. Now, technology and money and identity are all also very much uh, you know, factors that help to shape who has power and who calls the shots. And the truth is that we have had a very... Um, static understanding of what identity is. It's either your ethnic identity or your religious identity or your national state identity or what's in your passport. That's not a very creative way of understanding how identity can take shape in a, in a technological environment and in an environment where money talks as much as it does. Because I meet a lot of young people who subscribe to a generational identity. They identify with certain causes that they are either members of physically uh, or financially or through technology communities in the cloud like Facebook and, and various other groups and causes. Um, there's also corporate identities, which are extremely important today. When I meet young people who work for multinationals uh, but who have citizenship from Brazil or India or China or Russia, they realize that, in fact, their national identity will not allow them visa-free access to the West or other parts of the world for years and years to come. So the corporate identity is what allows them that access and the visas that their corporation gets for them. So corporate identity is also very important. Now, mega diplomacy is this realization that all of these different players, corporations, NGOs, governments, international organizations, you name it, entrepreneurs, are all coming together into one common collective diplomatic arena that everyone is negotiating with everyone all the time. 
and that the solutions to our problems, whether it is arms control, whether it's poverty, whether it's climate change, do not lie simply in top-down, centralized solutions of intergovernmental organizations, but rely much more in coalitions that bring together the, uh, the, the, the corporate world, the, civil, the civic world, and the governmental world, and even the religious sphere as well. And what I see around the world are examples of this mega-diplomacy, issue after issue, such that I find that theory actually needs to catch up with practice. And that's part of why I wrote this book. Sure. Well, in, in this world of mega-diplomacy and multiple actors and multipolarity, will the role of multinational corporations change? Will the responsibilities change? Well, the role and the rise of multinational corporations is precisely what has brought about this era. Really, you know, you, Steve, you've been writing about uh, international political economy since Susan Strange, you know, and, and so you know that it's really since the 60s and 70s that we've seen this transformation in the, in the global system away from just states alone to what, what Susan Strange called this triangular diplomacy in which firms were almost equal participants. So corporations have been a major driver in bringing about this new system, and so they're obviously going to play a very prominent role in it. The question is from where? First, you can tackle the issue of multinationals from the standpoint of what is their, what is their financial uh, power and their control over certain supply chains and resources. That obviously is something that's tremendous. That applies to uh, corporations such as energy companies and otherwise, and banks as well, uh, and, and it applies as well to state-owned corporations uh, at the same time. But it, uh, taken together, you can view corporations uh, you know, from the standpoint of the resources they control, the, um, the number of employees they have, the sort of loyalty that they kind of generate. A new point of view that has emerged on multinationals is, of course, their country of origin. Because as much as many of them may appear to be stateless, you know, sort of mobile networks, there is a particular new understanding of how uh, multinationals from emerging markets, whether it's from Brazil and India and other places, operate. Are they changing the landscape? Are they adapting to certain kinds of norms? Or are they, uh, are they, do they acting strictly in a mercantile kind of fashion? And that's an interesting aspect of this debate about the role of multinational corporations as well. But if you look at all of the different examples across these different frames, it's very hard to generalize, right? We know that some multinational corporations are huge providers of public goods. We know that others really shy away from those kinds of responsibilities. And the spectrum is very, very wide. So what I try and do in this book is not to generalize about that. I try and highlight some of the best and worst actors in both cases. Sure. Let me shift gears a little bit, Parag. You talk a lot about the need for a new colonialism. Uh, you talk about, at least my interpretation, that sovereignty and sovereign territoriality, territoriality are just so 20th century, and the need to remap large parts of Africa and the Mideast. Uh, that's interesting in the context of what's going on in North Africa and the Mideast at this point. Uh, how does that all apply to the, to the Arab Spring? to the disruption, the instability that we see, uh, the popular right. uprisings. Well, well, of course, I finished this book a year ago, but as you, as you probably saw right in the first chapter, in the first couple of pages, I say that Generation Y is getting its hands on social media technologies and making autocrats nervous because it's something that I've been observing for years and years and traveling in the Middle East. And absolutely, that plays a major role in this uh, Arab Spring, satellite media, social uh, media, networking technologies, and so on. Now, where the new colonialism comes in, I wasn't really necessarily referring to the Arab countries that are um, undergoing these convulsions today, other than when I talk about the need to remap certain territories. I could imagine that Libya is not going to uh, you know, sustain itself in its present geographic form. 
And as I and other political geographers like to say, you should always be suspicious of straight lines on a map. I was thinking of African conflicts, South Asia, the entire post-colonial world, um, which, which is really most of the countries in the world. Most of the 200 countries in the world are, of course, post-colonial countries, meaning they were really born in these waves of decolonization since the 50s and, 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 and subsequently. And a lot of them are failed or failing states. They are experiencing this entropy that I talk about with overpopulation, uh, poor economic uh, uh, health, uh, large youth unemployment, massive corruption, and all of these kinds of factors coming together. So at some point, this decay tips over into regime collapse and potentially state collapse, and that's kind of what we're seeing in the Middle East right now. Now, they have to be rebuilt. They have to be reconstituted as states. The governments within them, the societies, need a new sort of uh, purpose. And this is where this notion of a new colonialism comes in. I don't argue that we should aggressively be pursuing a new form of colonialism like the old. I specifically call it new for a very important reason. The, the, the multitude of actors that are involved in this new colonialism are not necessarily mercantile, uh, exploitative powers such as in the old colonialism. Here we're talking about a set of actors that can exercise the necessary leverage to get certain states and markets to uh, behave or to, to evolve uh, in a more accelerated fashion than would otherwise be the case. When you look at a country like Egypt, fine, Hosni Mubarak is gone, but the military is still very much in power. What is the mechanism by which you don't have to wait 25 years, as we did in the case of Turkey, for the military to be gradually extracted from the uh, political and economic sphere? Or in a place like Pakistan, where it's still very much the case today, that the military colonizes the economy, much to the detriment of the people. We know that these are public policy obstacles. Everyone knows that. The new colonialism is a force that helps to accelerate what are inevitable, necessary, and positive changes. Do you think we should have gotten involved in Libya, Parg? Do you think that's something that the U.S. and NATO forces should have intervened? Absolutely, but the question is how. First of all, there's never been a more cost-free in terms of a political or moral cases, because quite frankly, no Arab leader likes Gaddafi. So if ever there was an opportunity to test out the ability uh, of NATO to hopefully conduct uh, a much cleaner, quicker intervention than what it had, this would have been the case. That even applies to the possibility of having assassinated Gaddafi, which is quite frankly something that I was a very early advocate of basically one or two days into this when the rebels in the eastern part of the country had taken Benghazi. I said, you will have to assassinate. Now, I have actually spent time in Libya. I wrote a chapter of my last book on the country. So I know very, very well what Gaddafi is and isn't, and I knew that he was going to hang on and not take a golden parachute and move to the south of France. And so I said very clearly that this is a case where, and I, there is a chapter on assassinations in this book, um, that we that this would be an important case uh, of where this could be very well justified. And there are legal instruments to justify it and political instruments and moral case to justify it. Now, all of those three, none of those three have been used in an efficient manner. The military intervention on the traditional uh, approach, such as the no-fly zone, uh, you know, whether it's the Kosovo or the Iraq model, has not been executed well. Almost nothing has been executed well right now. And it's all gone far too slowly. So should the West have intervened in Libya in some way? Yes. Should we have been clear as to what that is? Yes, I was very clear on day two of this, what we should have done. Have we done anything uh, correctly in Libya? Not much at all. Other than to say that regional organizations have been very involved, whether it's the African Union or the Arab League, and I've endorsed in this book 
strengthening regional organizations and regional security mechanisms rather than global centralized ones. I think it's very important that they remain in charge of their own things. But where we can provide the resources to bring about certain changes that they have, have uh, ratified, I think that is a good embodiment of the principle that I'm going after here, which is using global resources to, uh, to support local actors. Now, you do talk in, in the book, as you just mentioned, about the need at times to remove heads of state that are often the roots of problems. Uh, who are the bad guys? How do we decide which heads of state to remove? And that's a euphemism. Uh, who removes them? Is it done through an international organization? Does the U.S. do it unilaterally? Does NATO decide? Uh, NATO decide? You talk about that it's e you mentioned that it's easy to sort out leaders who are civilized from those who are barbarians. Uh, how do, you, how do you make that decision? Who makes it? Right. So, yeah, the first question is we, because you said, you know, how do we make this decision? The question is, yeah, I don't think the we is always the White House, right? It doesn't have to be. Now, the, the French government, in this case, decided to recognize the Transitional Council very early. Arab League states told us, we don't want Gaddafi there anymore. So Arabs have decided or made a judgment about the fate of a fellow Arab and have effectively endorsed his removal from power. That, to me, is more important an endorsement than, say, waiting months and months for an ICC, International Criminal Court, procedure, although such a procedure has been launched. Now, we know very well what his human rights violations have been. We can most certainly make a case that humanitarian atrocities have been conducted ever since uh, the last six, seven weeks that this uh, conflict has unfolded. So now, if certainly, if not earlier, uh, such a measure could be legally justified. So you have the participation of the Arab League, you have the participation of international legal institutions that are passing judgment on this man, and you have outside powers that have the military means to hopefully conduct this as a swift uh, exercise. Now, whether or not an assassination should be conducted also depends to some extent on what the consequences might be of such an action. If you take the responsibility to protect doctrine, you have to go through a set of four or five questions that you answer. Is this justified? Is an intervention justified in terms of the cause? Is there imminent threat or danger of there being mass casualties if you do not undertake this intervention? And is there an assessment that it would work and not lead to a worse situation afterwards? Now, there are certain countries where you just don't know what would come next. If you were to take out Kim's, Kim Jong-il uh, in um, in North Korea, we don't know exactly what would come next, and well, certainly there would be a hostile response. We know that any intervention on Iran is going to provoke nationalism among the people, uh, potentially, because they don't want, uh, you know, sort of that kind of intrusion, even if they don't like their government. And uh, But in the case of Libya, you know, we can be fairly certain from all the knowledge that we do have uh, about the country and its society and tribes and people who we have contacts with there, that this would not lead to necessary mass anarchy or chaos, such as what we have now, which is a civil war. Sure. In fact, if we had acted early, I think that Gaddafi's allies would have been really in a state of shock, having lost their leader and having already lost the eastern part of the country, and you would have had an immediate negotiation over the, over the country's future. So I think that it would have been much better to have acted swiftly and to have taken him out. Sure. Let me shift gears, Park, to, to the section of the book you called Democracy Uber Alice. And as you note, and I think note well, that in today's world we face competing political and economic models, but you argue that the attractiveness of one over the other is judged by the ability to provide material benefits and not how democratic it is. That's interesting. It, it runs counter to the traditional argument that democracy and free market capitalism go together and that with economic liberalization, we're going to see demands for democracy. 
Uh, and let me move to China, which is clearly a state-dominated, very authoritarian market economy. We're seeing increased restrictions on political freedom, free expression. Ai Weiwei, the artist, was just arrested for economic crimes. Uh, question is, can China continue along this road? It's doing well, yeah, doing well economically. And I guess the question is, will continued development result in pressures for democracy, or is authoritarian state-dominated capital viable, uh, capitalism viable into the long run? I think, you know, before getting just to the case of China, I think, you know, the, the case that I make is that democracy requires capitalism. Capitalism doesn't necessarily require democracy. And I've been putting together some data on, you know, the top 10 performing uh, uh, non-democratic states in the world and the top 10 democratic states in the world, and looking at their growth figures, looking at per capita GDP and other sorts of metrics, and seeing that, you know, the, 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 there is a genuine debate out there about what constitutes good governance and how to go about achieving it. And that increasingly there is this meme of good governance, which includes or, or, or involves assessing a set of metrics around public service delivery, uh, accountability of rule, um, access to information, uh, access to technology and, and, and economic um, uh, indicators uh, that don't necessarily hinge on whether or not a state is democratic. And this, we have to understand, is a broader meme that is out there. China's rise is part of the reason why that is the case. The fact that many people speak about a China model uh, and potentially want to emulate it, in other words, economic reform and growth first, political reform second, if at all, uh, is part of the reason why people are having this conversation about good governance instead of democracy. I think it's a healthy debate to have because the competition of ideas, the competition for delivery, the competition of models is inherently a good thing. It makes us shine a mirror on ourselves. Now, when it comes to China, it, it is absolutely true that it is an authoritarian capitalist market economy, and it is a very valid question as to whether it can be sustained. But to pretend that there is necessarily this rigid black or white situation uh, in which it is all authoritarian now and will eventually hit some giant bump in the road and be required to become democratic, I think that is a, a fallacious approach to the situation. For those who study China, we know very well that there's a tremendous amount of experimentation going on with entrepreneurship, with innovation, with trying to get an edge in different sectors, both from a state investment perspective and private investment. We know that there is um, also a very healthy debate, actually, in the country at many levels uh, about their political form. Democracy is not necessarily a four-letter word in China, believe it or not. There are many people who talk about how to transform from the present one-party dominated state towards some kind of a meritocratic parliamentary system. And they're experimenting in paper, and on, as you know, they have village elections as well in many cases. They're experimenting with all kinds of ways to modernize, reform, and evolve their system without going into that scenario that so many people simply project onto the country, which is that it's all or nothing. Either you have the party or you have collapsed. And they obviously are aware of that, but that is, quite frankly, not giving them nearly enough credit for the amount of thought currently putting into and the amount of experimentation they're willing to put into reforming their political system. Is it going to work? I don't know. We know that middle classes do obviously press for, for greater amounts of freedom, but Chinese people have tremendous amount of economic freedom and they're willing to sacrifice to some extent political freedoms. We have to remember that China is actually a fairly conservative society inherently. Many people alive in China today, it is after all an aging society, as we all know. That means that many people actually live through the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, and therefore don't necessarily want to uh, torpedo or sink the progress that they've experienced in the last several decades just in order to have more political rights. They probably prefer evolution to revolution, and I don't blame them.
Okay, Parag, that's really interesting, really helpful. I think we're going to wrap up here. And uh, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And it's a pleasure to see you again or talk to you again after all of these years. Good talking to you. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Steve. Bye-bye. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.